0: All right. Well, good evening, Brighton and Brookline. We've got a couple of false starts, uh, but the gospel does not have a false start. And that's what we will discuss uh, this evening. Amen. Uh, if you have a copy of the Bible, we're going to be in John chapter eight this evening. And again, if I've not met you, it's a blessing to be with you this evening. I've got the great privilege of serving the wonderful people of Brighton, Coa Brighton. And uh, we did a residency with you all in Brookline for about two years and then planted in September of 2019. Well, as you're getting open to uh, John chapter eight, today we're talking about, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And as we begin, I want us all to do a mental exercise together. And let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered the power of words? How words have the power to affect things in our lives, especially something maybe like a status or a relationship. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, on July the 29th, 2011, I said these eight words to a girl. Will you go on a date with me? And she said yes. Then on September 1st, 2012, I said these five words to that same girl. "Uh, Will you be my girlfriend? And she said yes. So on December the 11th, 2014, I said these three powerful words. I love you. And she responded with the back, so we're, we're good right now. We're on a date. She's my girlfriend. I love her. December 1st, 2014, I said these words, will you marry me? And then on April the 20th, Emily, my wife, said these two powerful words back to me, I do. Words are powerful, especially in a relationship, especially if those words are a positive thing. But for you who's hearing this tonight or maybe online, maybe the words that you've heard over the course of your life have not been so positive. Maybe the words that you've heard or the thoughts you have in your head this evening sound like this. You aren't good enough. No one really loves you. You're not special or important. You're not wanted, and you're not worthy of anyone's time, attention, affection, or protection. Or maybe that you and your life and your struggles don't matter to anyone. And so you think that maybe if you just look differently and you tried harder, you fixed the imperfections, you became stronger, you knew more, maybe served harder in church, you succeeded more, or stood out from the crowd, then you would matter. And then finally then, you would mean something. Maybe you weren't told these words specifically, but their message was communicated to you through actions or absence of a family member, a father, a mother, a teacher, or maybe the disapproval from those whom you love. Does this maybe ring a bell for anyone's experience? Your college years and your earlier years, maybe your marriage? And this can really hurt and affect the way we live today, doesn't it? The thoughts, the words of others, even if we're not even aware of it, Well, friends, listen, there's really good news because you're not alone in those thoughts or those experiences. See, Jesus meets a woman in the Bible just like us, just like you, just like me, a woman whose past events and words spoken to her affected her present and into her future. And Jesus does something for her and shares just five words that change every area of her life. In just five words, she's finally seen, and she's known, and she's loved. At their sound, she's set free to pursue the life that she's always wanted, one with real love and security, importance, impact, and pleasure. She finally sees that these are only found in embracing what Jesus has said to her and done for her. And they're not found in the relationships and the lifestyles and the performance driven actions that she always believed would give her worth, value, and meaning. And today, that same Jesus in that historical event wants to do the same for you wherever you find yourself this evening. No matter what hardship, no matter what words, no matter what circumstance you faced, Jesus wants to speak a word to you through scripture today. So whether you consider yourself a skeptic this evening, a seeker, or a seasoned Christian, we all have a past filled with hurts and presence filled with unmet hopes. And what Jesus will do in this text tonight seeks to speak to those today to bring us the hope and the help and the healing that we all need. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention now to John chapter eight, and let's see what Jesus had said and done to this woman as we entitled this message this, redeemed, redeemed how five words can change everything. As we hop into this text this evening, uh, you may have a note in your Bible concerning this very passage in John chapter eight, starting in verse two. This text that we're going to read was not an original part of the manuscripts associated with John's gospel. We don't see this very story circulating through the early churches until about the third century. However, many scholars trust that this event we're about to read actually happened. Why? Because of its warmth and reception amongst Christians in the early church and because of its heavy circulation and widespread approval in the early church. And so it was added to John's gospel because the believers knew this story. They had heard it orally shared over and over and over. It was widely accepted because it was historically reliable. So this morning as we consider this passage, we consider this event to have actually happened and a part of God's sovereign plan for us in order to reveal his heart to you and to me. So with that said, let's dive into this text and this historical story. John chapter eight, starting in verse two. Early in the morning, he, meaning Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to see him, and he sat down and taught them. Now listen, this scene sort of feels like maybe this evening, but except it was not a four o'clock service, it was early, early in the morning. Maybe this was a 6 a.m. service or as a 7 a.m. service, but this was typical for Jesus at this time. Notice in verse two, it says, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. So this was custom for Jesus. He would come to the temples and he would sit down and he would teach something from the Old Testament scriptures. And often he would point to himself as the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures. And so this seemed like it was a custom every week scenario, but today, this day, in this story, something different was about to unfold. It says, all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. Verse three, the scribes and the Pharisees, which were the Jewish religious leaders of that day, they brought a woman forward. And on first glance, we can all be like, that's excellent. Finally, in that day, women are brought to be equals, to be treated as equals. So maybe in that day, they were thinking, man, that's great, the, The scribes and the Pharisees were gonna give women a front row seat and not just far in the back where it's hard to hear. So on first glance, this seems exciting. All the people came to Jesus. It's packed out. Imagine this room for just a moment, that it's not just a few hundred people, but there's multi-hundreds of people, even thousands of people. You can imagine maybe the windows open, the back doors. People are scattered about trying to hear Jesus. And in this moment where Jesus is teaching, you see some religious leaders move around in the back. And then you see there's a woman coming forward, and everyone's attention is beginning to shift from Jesus to what's happening there in the back. So the scribes and Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and they placed her in the midst of everyone that was around them, verse four, and they said to Jesus, hey, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, now in the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And the entire thing paused. Can you imagine for a moment how startling this scene was? The text tells us there's there's a precious woman made in the image of God who had been caught in the very act of Adultery. Do you know what that means, being caught in the very act? I I don't even know if she was properly clothed when she was brought into this worship gathering. Maybe her husband was there, maybe her kids were there, but an incredibly embarrassing, shameful, hurtful moment for her. And we don't exactly know how the scene played out, but... There was someone the night before that she was with that was using her, and now these religious men were using her again in this congregation. So you can imagine this woman was feeling deep shame. She had her teachers there, maybe her, her friends, her neighbors, her family, her kids were in this room, and you can imagine the shame and the regret she had from the night before. And so all the attention turns to Jesus, and they say, now the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman, Jesus, because look at what she did to her husband and her kids, and how she dishonored her marriage, and they're just attacking her. They're going after her, and her sin is being exposed. Imagine if that happened to any one of us in this room. Someone just began to expose all the things that we've said and all the things that we've done, and they look at Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, what do you say? What do we do? Can we just acknowledge for a moment how tense this moment is? Can we all just go, even though you have a mask on, I will wear a mask once I'm done with teaching. Could you imagine how tense this moment was? And why is this moment so tense? Because we know that Leviticus chapter 20 begins to circulate in everyone's mind. Do you know what that text says? In Leviticus chapter 20, it says this, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So everyone knows this text and that's what they're referring to in verse five. Now the law of Moses commands to stone such a woman. What do you say? And so Jesus is in this dilemma. This is a huge moment. The next words determine whether this woman will live or die. Like right here, right now in this congregational worship service. So what will he say? Guys, and on one end, Jesus is perfect and just. And he has to follow the law, right? And the law states that she should be killed for her sin. And of course, that law doesn't be in place today through our faith, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But during that day, that law was in place. And so Jesus is faithful and just, he's perfect. And so he has to follow the law, right? He must follow that. Her sin must be paid for according to that law at that time, right? We even we know this further from Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. It tells us this, it says, curse be everyone who does not abide by the things that are written in the book of the law and do them. It's even harder in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, this includes me, if you know my life, my past, my present struggles, you know that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory or the standard of God's holiness. I've fallen short of that. And so Romans 6.23 tells me, for the wages or the penalty of me falling short is death. Jesus knows this. The congregation knows this, and the woman who's caught in this moment of hurt and shame and embarrassment that's been dragged before her entire community knows this. And so what does Jesus do? This woman knows the law. She probably grew up in the same Jewish schools as everyone else. She knew Leviticus 20, 10. So what happens? Verse six. Well, we know some commentary from John here that the Pharisees and the scribes, they said this to test them that they might have a charge to bring against Jesus because either Jesus lets her off the hook and then he's guilty of breaking the law or Jesus allows for an execution happening happen in this worship service and then Jesus' ministry of love and care and kindness and healing goes away and then no longer is he a threat to the Jewish way of life in that day. So what does Jesus do? He does the most bizarre, seemingly odd thing on the planet. Jesus, what do you have to say, they said, and then Jesus bent down and wrote on his finger in the ground, verse seven. And so they continue to ask him, hey, Jesus, it's not time to play in the sand. It's not arts and crafts. Coa Kids is over. Like, what are you doing? They continue to ask him, hey, Jesus, this is an important moment. And so Jesus stood up and said to them, this soul-crushing response. Look at it in the text. It says this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, he says yes. She is deserving of death according to this law. Guys, can you imagine for a moment this woman? She's hanging her head She's in deep shame, regret, and self-hatred. If she's wearing makeup, you can imagine it run on her face. She's not dressed properly again because she was caught in the very act of adultery. And then now the one who is without sin, the one she's heard about, this perfect God, Jesus, she knows that Jesus is the only one to qualify for this. And so she thinks Jesus is going to be my executioner. And so what happens in the crowd? Verse eight, so once more Jesus bent down with his finger to the ground, and some scholars think that he was drawing a line in the sand for when people would stand and throw the giant stone at her. Some think that he was writing scripture in the sand, how he would fulfill her destiny by dying in his place, by writing out scripture. We're not exactly sure, but Jesus continued to write on the ground. And then this is what happened. When the crowd heard What Jesus had said about let him who's without sin throw the first stone, when they heard this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, because let's be honest, if you're older in the room, you know all the things that you've done that are mistakes in your marriage or parenting issues or the things that you've not told the truth about. We know all the sins that we've done. And so the older ones begin to leave the crowd because they know they're not perfect. And then it goes down to the younger ones, and then it was all alone in this moment. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. This leaves only Jesus, the perfect one, who is without sin to provide what she believes is going to be the execution, to throw the first and final stone to end how she feels this rebellion against God and his perfect law. And so what happens, look at verse 10. Jesus stood up from the ground and he said to this woman, this is important words here, lean into this. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus stood up in that moment as to, Execute the moment of rightful execution to this woman. And he asks a really provoking question Where are they? And this is in contrast to the crowd saying, Jesus, what do you say? This is showing a distinction between her focus and finding her worth and value in others and not in Christ. And maybe this is a key to show us what happened the night before. He's saying, Where are they? the ones you believe you can find your value in? Where are they where you believe you can find your sexual pleasure from? Where are they the ones that will give you affirmation or kindness? Where are they, where's the place you've been looking to to find your value all of this world? And he's trying to draw her attention to him. And now Christ, the perfect one, who has not sinned, is standing judge over her, now declaring the most powerful and important soul-shattering truth concerning where she can find her worth and identity. It's in him. And do you know what he says? He says the five powerful words that transforms everything in her life. Neither do I condemn you. How can Jesus say that? Jesus just broke the law, right? Right? Leviticus 20.10 says this is what must happen if someone commits this sin? Is Jesus no longer just? Did he disobey the law? The Bible's clear, right? If someone sins like me, and in those times if someone sinned, they must be stoned, right? Now Jesus is a rebel, right? He's fallen from God's standard. He's no longer perfect, right? Or, in fact, there will be one who will take the penalty for her sin. There will be one that's executed on her behalf. And you could imagine verse 11b, him say this with a smile on his face. Neither do I condemn you. You can go free. From now on, sin no more. Is this not a beautiful story? Jesus can let her off the hook because he got on the cross for her. Jesus took her penalty as his own. Her shame became his. Her guilt, her sin became Jesus's. And so Jesus knew the law that there would be a death penalty for her, and Jesus stood in place and said, I will take her sin, and Jesus would go on the cross and die for her. I wonder, I wonder if when she was watching Jesus carry the cross on her back, she wept knowing that that's where she should be. When Jesus was hung up on the cross, she knew that she should be there just like I should be there. And Jesus forgave her and loved her and told her, You can go free. And I'm even gonna give you the power not to sin because and value and pleasure that you were looking for, and things outside your marriage, I'm gonna help you find those things in me. This is a beautiful, magnificent story. A real story of God's love and how He forgives us for our sins. Jesus in our, in my, in your place. There's a few things, friends, that I'd like to draw out for us tonight from this text that I, I pray warms your heart if you're a Christian to remember what you and I believe in about ourselves and what can happen with our friends and neighbors who trust in this. Jesus, I want to warm our hearts. If we're a guest, I'm so grateful that you're here. If you're considering the claims of Christianity, I want you to see how sacrificial and loving this God is on your behalf. So there's just three quick points I wanna draw out for us tonight in this idea of redemption or the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means this, friends, it means this. Jesus has purchased our forgiveness, our family, and our freedom, Yes, I went to a Baptist seminary that just showed you because I alliterated on that. My new rap CD is coming out soon. You can buy it online, right? Just kidding, that's not true. But Jesus persists our forgiveness, our family, and our freedom. Here's the first thing I want us to see here redemption means this I am forgiven. This is a very basic point for us, but can we say that out loud? I know that you can't, I can't see your mouth, but I might be able to hear your voice. Redemption means what? Can you say, I am forgiven? Ephesians one picks up this theme that we see in John chapter eight. It's a doctrinal angle of what we just saw in story. Ephesians chapter one says this, in Jesus, you and I, we have the redemption through his blood, the what? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Guys, do you know what this means? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Guys, you know what this means? It means that our past wrongs, our present struggles, and our future sins, they don't define us. Because God lives outside of time, and he came into our time, he's able to die for sins of all of time. So when it says the forgiveness of our trespasses, that means no matter what you've done in the past, Friend, no matter what you did last night, your sins in Christ have been washed away. The guilt that remains on your conscience because of what you've looked at, what you drank, what you ate, what you didn't tell the truth about, what you stole in your marriage with your kids, no matter what that is, God doesn't look at you and run away. God looks at that and runs to you. He wants to take that sin, that guilt, what's weighing on your conscience, and free you and put that on himself. That means your future, no matter your success, no matter what you can do in this world, that doesn't define you. It says in this text that it's according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. That's what gives us identity and value and meaning. So friend, listen, just like this woman who ran outside of her marriage to find pleasure and and, and love and, and unity, guys, we do the same thing that this woman does. We may not do it in our marriages but we do it in our jobs. We do it with our finances. We do it with adventures and vacations and we do all kinds of things. We run to other things other than to God and you know what God says? I don't condemn you because I was condemned in your place. You can go free because your value and your worth and your status and your importance and your dignity and your love, your goodness, your uniqueness is not found in those things. It's found in me now. My friends, this means that you are forgiven. This story that happened a few thousand years ago is just as real as it is today. And friends, I'd like to take a quick moment just to pause and to tell you just a quick personal story of how real this story really is. Um, my grandfather is 96 years old. And when I mean old, I mean like, that's awesome. 96 years of life. And for the majority of this man's life, He was adamantly against Jesus and the claims of Christianity. He thought it was very offensive, like I first did, that we would call anyone a sinner. And he denied that claim. He denied that Jesus was a historical figure that even died for the sins of anyone, that Jesus really rose from the dead. He didn't believe any of those things for 96 years of his life. And when I became a Christian, when I was 20, I began to share this with my grandfather who we had a close relationship with. He began to teach me math when I was a kid. The first time I threw baseball in the backyard with my father and my grandfather. We had tons of conversations about sports and life. But when I became a Christian, I began to talk about Jesus with him. And every conversation ended up with him saying, hey, I love you, but I hate everything that you believe. I ended up preaching my grandmother's funeral and my the rest of my family that was there. And he asked me to teach it Uh, I teach from the scriptures from Psalm 23 and I shared the gospel at the very end. He's like, hey, I love that you shared that message, but you know I don't believe that. You know our family doesn't believe that, right? And so for a decade of my life, from 20 years old to I'm 32 now, and my mom, when she became a Christian when she was 20, has shared the gospel and my grandfather just passed away two Mondays ago. But church, it was the Wednesday before the passing of my grandfather that my mother had a conversation with him for 45 minutes where he was clear-minded, he was asking questions about God. And for the first time, my grandfather made it so clear. He said these words. When we asked him, my mom asked him, I asked him, I talked to him on Sunday, my mom talked to him on Wednesday, and both times he said this. He says, yes, I do believe I do believe that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of this Jesus. This Jesus has loved me, pursued me. He's died on the cross for me and I want to meet him. This grandfather for 96 years of life, he wasn't able to do anything. He didn't give his money to the church. He didn't serve God. He didn't love God. He didn't want God. He didn't read the scriptures. There was no amount of good deeds that he did. It was on his recliner chair in the last days of his life that Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. You're welcome here through what Christ has done for you. And my grandfather believed. And my grandfather became a brother in Christ. That Wednesday was his very final conversation on this earth. Doctors came by to visit, nurses came by, and that 45 minutes was his very last conversation that he had. He could say hello to my mom when she walked in, hello to my uncle when they walked in, but no other conversation was he able to have. And then he passed away with great joy and great peace in his heart. My friends, God still saves today. God still loves today. God still pursues today. No matter what this woman had done in this text in John 8, no matter what you and I have done today, no matter what you've done for 96 years of life, God doesn't turn his back on us. He runs after us and takes our sin on his back for you and for me. My friends, this is a powerful story of how God still forgives Ephesians 2 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, he repeats himself again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My friends, you and I are forgiven this way. We are saved by God, not by ourselves. We're saved by mercy, not by earning or begging God. We're saved by love, it's not conditioned by anything we do or how smart we are, or what we'll do in the future, it's conditioned by God's not by our effort. We're saved by faith and not by works. In other words, here's what I'm saying salvation from sin is not something achieved by our works, but received because of Christ's work on our behalf. Redemption means that I am forgiven. Number two, redemption means this it means I have a family. I have a family. Not only is this, this this isolated and intimate, personal, individualistic experience that I have with God when I trust in him and I want a relationship with him for my joy and my hope and my peace, it means that I'm brought into something. I'm brought out of my sin and brought into a family. Paul again picks up this theme in Ephesians chapter one. He says this, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, again, because of what Christ has done. Verse five, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. My friend, this woman in John chapter eight really struggled, it seems like, with her identity and value and worth. And maybe her marriage was a challenge and I'm not sure how it was for her. Maybe she had kids, she had parenting. We're not exactly sure, but we knew she began to find her identity outside of this. And you know what this text teaches us? It says something about how God is our father and we have a new identity. From Ephesians 1, we see this. It says, I am chosen. You're a chosen people. In Christ, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. By God who wants me and sees me and knows me. God is for us. We've been chosen by him. So listen, if you don't feel like you've been chosen uh, in, the term, in the realm of marriage, you're still as a single and you're thinking, why won't anyone choose or love me? By the way, that's not the right mind frame. God loves you and he does choose you. But this is the hope we have that God is the one If you've been overshadowed for a job promotion or a degree program and you feel like you're not being chosen, God chooses us. There's a worth and a value that he sets on us. He chooses us. He says we're beloved by an unconditional, never-ending, all-satisfying, intimate God. This text tells us that we're purchased by a father at the cost of his one morally perfect, infinite son. He allowed this son to die so he could gain in you as a son or a daughter. And it means that you're adopted by a perfect father who will never belittle you. He won't abandon you. He won't neglect you like maybe your past has shown you what a father does. This father doesn't belittle. He doesn't abandon. He doesn't neglect. And this God works without rest to ensure that all things in this life work out for your good and God's glory. It means your family. You have brothers and sisters. You have a new father. I won't go too much into detail, but I've shared this frequently with church. We've got two little girls in our family, Kiana and Sarah. And without going into too much detail, the home that Kiana was in before was a terrible home. The things that happened to her, said to her, done to her were awful. And God in his grace used you, Coa Brighton, you, Coa Brookline, to bring in a little girl into our home and you helped us to love her and to care for her as she walked through healing. As a church, it felt like we together adopted her and we began to tell her a story about how there's a different father than the one she had when she was born. A father who would never do or say or act out against her like she had experienced. My friends, you and I acted like a family because you and I know what it's like to be in this new narrative where we have a father who loves us and takes care of us. And you and I helped to love a little girl who needed this story. We're a family. We have a new identity. And this story takes us to go and share it with many, many, many others, which leads me to my third point. Redemption means I am free. I am free. I love at the very end of John chapter eight, Jesus tells her, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He's not telling her, you better not sin anymore. You stop that. Do better. How dare you? He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm giving you the power now to go and sin no more. My friends, Colossians one says this. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins do you know what this means church you know what this means friends you and i are free from trying to find our worth in my effort or my performance or my service or my status or my phd or my goodness i'm free from that from having to look for pleasure online to escape the struggles of my life because God is now our refuge, not pornography, not escape from marriage. God can be those things. So he says, go and sin no more, not go and stop sinning. He says, go and start beholding the love and the value of God. Guys, I struggle with this often, this go and sin no more. Do you? Do you struggle with this? God still tells you neither do I condemn you. Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, when you and I sin, we're afraid that someone's going to find out or we don't want to go to God. God invites us to come to him. It, it shouldn't be, I don't want to tell God. I want to come back to him. It should be, no, I, I want to go tell God because it will help me. He'll never leave me. If he never left this woman in John 8, he never left my grandfather for 96 years. If he didn't leave me, he won't leave you either. You are free to walk in this, God. You are free from trying to find your pleasure in romance or appearance or your status or anything. You're free the more and more we understand how deeply he forgave, how deeply he loves you and you and you and you and you and you. He knows your name, he knows your story, he knows your struggles, and he doesn't shy away from your struggles. He sees what you sin in the dark, in the background, and he still comes after you. He still is forgiven those sins, and he wants you to come close to here. I still choose you. I still love you. I still forgive you. I still will empower you. God is still with us. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. This woman who was caught up in adultery is now the woman who's caught up in God's approval of her in Christ. She's defined by it, she's changed by it, she's transformed by it. And how do I know? Because we see a powerful story of God's love for her. A gracious story of God taking this woman's sins and putting it on himself. And she knows this, and so in verse 11, she responds. She says, no one, Lord. She places her faith in this God, in this Savior. My friends, there's an invitation for you this evening. There's two invitations for us. The first invitation is if you're a guest and you've gathered with us, or you've been exploring the claims of Christianity for some time, this is the very crux of what we believe From Romans chapter 10, it says this. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him, God will not put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you know what this means? This means that every ounce of any sin that we've ever committed will be paid for. We've talked about this a few times in our churches before, but I wanna kind of list this out for you for a moment. Uh, I just took a chart on my sins, and there's 667 of these sins that are here. If we just start on the first page, um, it was disobeying my parents as a kid, arguing with my siblings, speaking unkind words to others, talking behind people's back, Lying, stealing, cheating, gossip, slander, bitterness, envy, jealousy, sexual immorality, lust, pride, arrogance, desiring money more than God, desiring popularity more than God, desiring anything more than God. And then here's all of my sins. Just page after page, after page, after page, after page, after page, after page. We're still going folks, we're page 17. Page after page, after page, after page, after page after page of all of my sins that I just could think of that I did before God. And I have infinitely more of these sins. And you know what I see from God? is Colossians chapter two. And Aaron, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, the uncircumcised flesh of your heart, and God made you alive with him, having forgiven my trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, he nailed to the cross and he forgives us. This is the invitation for everyone. God knows everything you've ever done, and he doesn't condemn you. He condemned himself so he can invite you in. My friends, this is the gospel. I don't have a list of this against you. I have a list of this against God. He saw it all. He knows it all. And I've got more than 667 sins. Ask my wife. I commit half of those in a day. Not proud of that, but here we are. My friend, if you're a guest, I want you to see that this is not about doing better. It's about that God did it already. Would you trust in that today? Would you call to him and say, God, I want this relationship with you, how you love and pursue, how you'll never walk out on me, how you speak over me that I'm chosen and beloved, I'm valuable, I'm significant to you, I'm uniquely designed, you'll protect me, you'll defend me, you won't betray me. I matter, that's the first invitation. If you've never trusted in Christ, and maybe you trusted in good works or some prayer that you've prayed, but you've never trust that he canceled your debt on the cross, today, now, would you believe? Would you trust? The second invitation is this, that everyone has a story just like me. That I have a family member, you have a friend that does not yet know or trust this story of Jesus. And this person may live in your home. They may be a roommate that God has put you in their path to love them and show them the story of Jesus. It could be a family member. It could be a coworker. It could be a boss. It could be a child. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone you went to college with, high school with. It could be in your grad program. It could be a professor. Who has God put in your path to share the good news of Jesus My mom labored for 47 years to pray and to share the gospel and to love him. Not not to slam the gospel or the Bible down his throat, but to pray for him and have conversations and to dialogue about it with truth and grace. And for me, only 12 years, but God heard our prayers in the final hours of my grandfather's life for us to hear him say, I believe, I believe, I trust, I want this God, when he rejected him for 96 years of his life. My friend, God is still moving. He's still active. And my friend, will you partner with him, Christian, to make the gospel known to your friends and your neighbors? I want to take a minute now for us, take a moment to actually pray right this moment. As we've talked about, uh, Pastor Bland just talked about who's your one? Who's one person that you feel that maybe God positioned you in relationship to share the gospel with this person? Who's your one? For 12 years, it was my grandfather. Who is it for you? Who is God putting on your heart? Would you think of that name now? Draw that name to mine. And I want to give you just a minute right now in our service, right here, give you one minute to pray for that person. That God would give you an opportunity to speak for them, speak to them, share with them, that they would encounter with the Holy Spirit to believe that something miraculous would happen. Let's take a moment to pray for one minute and then I'll continue us. Let's pray. As you're praying, I want to encourage anyone who has not yet trusted in Christ to take a moment and call out to God. Romans chapter 10 says we can do this through simple faith. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for who, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In this next moment, if anyone knows in their heart that they're not in this relationship with God, but you want it, it's simply by faith. Trusting, yes God, I believe that you died in my place and I want a relationship with you. Will you forgive me? Enter my life. I'm going to give you a moment to pray that, and then we'll close out in prayer together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can approach you through prayer and you hear us because of Jesus opening the gate of this relationship because he took on what was ours and gave us what was his. God, I thank you for the gift of Jesus dying in our place and giving us his righteousness. God, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We can go and sin no more because there's one who has gone and taken on our place. God, I pray for our friends and our neighbors, our coworkers that we just lifted before you. I pray that we would be faithful and loving and truthful to share who you are the reality of your life and your death and resurrection in our place, how you don't come to condemn when you came. You came to save, and you still do today. I pray that we would be faithful. We would be bold. We would be kind. We would be patient. We would listen well. We would dialogue just like Jesus, ask questions. And through our churches, God, would you lead many more to life to joy, to pleasure, to peace, to happiness in you. Even when life is challenging, it's so worth it when we are in relationship with you. God, I pray for any of our guests or friends that have been exploring the claims of Christianity. May today be the day, Jesus, that they believe in you. May you give them the faith, the trust to believe. And maybe they walk with you, maybe today for the very first time in their life. In the powerful name we all pray. Jesus,